If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We're going to put them on the screen for you here in a second. Um, and uh, if you would like a Bible and you don't own one, uh, talk to me. Talk to our guys in the sound booth afterwards. Find somebody. Uh, we'll get you a copy of that because we believe it's that important. Um, one quick announcement before we jump into Philippians 1 this morning. Uh, every Wednesday night, uh, we have a um, midweek prayer time and Bible study. Uh, and there's a good uh, core group that comes to that every week, but there's a lot of people who, who don't take advantage of that. And um, this week especially, I want to encourage you to just kind of take the time to be here this Wednesday night. We have um, a guy coming from... Uh, this year, he's the European consulate, if you will, to this group called Pioneers. And part of his job is to train Arab pastors uh, in Muslim countries. Right? So these, this guy's on the front lines. These people that he's training on the front lines, these are countries that are very hostile uh, to Christianity. And this guy trains them, he prepares them, and he, he gets them ready for that work. And he's going to be here Wednesday night at 6.30. Um, talking about that kind of work, talking about... Um, things he's been exposed to and seen and ways that we can pray for them. Um, and it's a great, great uh, sort of alignment with our Good Friday service coming up next month um, in which we will pray for the persecuted church. So um, if you've never tried a Wednesday night out before, give that a shot. Also, uh, Pastor Mark sends his greetings to all of you. It's spring break around here, so I'm really, really excited that all of you are here because I wasn't sure anybody was going to be here today. Um, but they are, they're off on a family getaway and he wanted me to say hi to you. Um, so if you have uh, your Bibles open, uh, look at Philippians chapter 1. If not, we're going to throw in the screens for you. I'm going to start reading in verse 20. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I, I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. Let's pray really quickly. Father, we thank you um, for this opportunity today, God. We thank you that this is your word and these are your people God, this is your day and your hour. Um, all of it is you. And so we just pray now that um, you'd push me aside. You'd push um, whatever distractions of life or baggage we've brought in this morning, God. And just that for these next few moments, you would reign supreme. You would be pleased with the words that are said and the decisions that are made. And that you would get all the glory from it. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his book, uh, No Wonder They Call Him Savior, Max Lucado writes about one of the strangest crimes that occurred in our history. Um, thieves broke into a large department store in a major city, only um, they didn't take anything. Right? Not one item was missing. No money was removed. In fact, when employees came to work the next day, they couldn't even detect that someone had been there. Right? The store opened just like any other day, and it remained open for a couple hours before anyone even realized what had happened. And what these guys had did was they had gone around the entire store and they'd switched the price tags. This was before barcodes and all that, so everything was done by price tags. And so they took a $395 tag off a camera and swapped it with a $5 tag that they removed from a box of stationery. They switched everything in the store. And for half a morning, the store operated as if nothing was wrong. Some customers got incredibly ripped off and others got incredible deals. 
Now, have you ever noticed how the value of things just kind of seem off? Uh, for instance, Friday I filled up my car with gas and it was three sixty-five a gallon. That feels like way too high to me, right? Um, but then I started thinking about some other liquids and what we pay for them. For instance, Dasani bottled water, right? It costs $1.49 for a 20-ounce bottle. That comes out to $9.59 a gallon. Aren't you glad your car doesn't run on water, right? Um, other liquids that you probably purchased, Gatorade. If you, if, you ca- if you do simple math, and if anybody knows me, I'm really mediocre at math, but if you do simple math, Gatorade comes out to, to more than $10 a gallon. Pepto-Bismol comes out to $123 a gallon. Right? Ne- NyQuil costs you $178 a gallon, right? So other than water, none of those liquids do for your body what gas does for a car. None of them have the value uh, that gas does for a car. None of them are as important. Okay, well, except maybe Pepto-Bismol in an emergency situation, if you know what I mean, right? But we live in a society and we operate in an economy where the value of something is not set by its usefulness. It's not set by its importance, but it's set by supply and demand. And that can lead to some pretty crazy prices for things that aren't that valuable. But there's something else, something much more dangerous than that, however, that that is at play in our world that has nothing to do with economics. Because you and I live in a world where a thief has snuck in and he switched the tags. And the things that are of great value and of of great importance, they are ignored and unpursued and left on the shelves gathering dust while the demand for the useless, trivial, meaningless things remains through the roof. And the thief is sure to continue the supply. We've been going through the book of Philippians together and we've already seen how amazing this, this little book is. And what's been amazing is both the things that, that Paul, who wrote this book, that has called these people to, but also how these things have played out in his life. Right? And so, so far in the letter, he has reminded them that their purpose for existence, right, the reason they are here is to bring much praise and glory to God. And last week, we, we looked at how freeing that is, because Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians from jail, and while he was in jail, people were trying to harm him even more, and he was just untouchable. He was unbothered. In fact, he was rejoicing in it. He was rejoicing because Jesus was getting the glory. He was rejoicing because the good news about Jesus was being shared with others through his suffering. And so he was even taking joy in his suffering. And today he's going to give us sort of a a brief mission statement when it comes uh, to his life and what has value and more importantly what doesn't. Uh, So let's pick it up. Let's look again at verse 20 where... Uh, and see what God has for us today. Verse 20, we read before, we'll read it again. It says, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. And now again, Paul is writing this from jail. He's been put in jail because he was teaching about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and he was put in jail to deter him or stop him from doing that. Has that worked? Not at all. Right? Last week we saw where all the guards know about Christ because Paul told them. Right? And he writes fully that he expects here. He says, I fully expect to never be ashamed of my calling. Never be ashamed of, of what I've been told to do. I will continue to be bold for Christ. This is a man who wrote Romans 1.16 that says this. I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ because it is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. Paul's being really overt here. He says, listen, I'm a one-trick pony. 
I've got one skill, one motivation, one aim. You, if you have me around, you're going to hear about how Jesus came and lived a perfect life. You're going to hear about how Jesus died to pay the price for your sins and how he rose from the dead to prove that he was God. God. You're going to hear me tell you that if you repent and you turn from living for yourself and you turn to Jesus and ask him to forgive your sins and you will be made right with God and granted eternal life from him and you're going to hear nothing more than that and nothing less than that and nothing else than that because it is the power of God and it alone saves people from their sins. Right, so the Jews and the Romans and whoever else who didn't like it could throw him in jail. They could beat him and whip him and stone him. He wasn't stopping because he believed that if he stuck to that good news and that gospel, then whatever happened to him would bring honor to Christ. They could free him. They could cheer him. They could believe in the message he preached. Christ would get the honor. They could revile him and harm him and kill him based on the message he preached. And Christ would get the honor. So he's good either way. Paul's aim and his goal and his mission is to bring honor to Jesus in his life and in his death, however it may come. And we've already discovered together as we've been going through this letter how that kind of focus frees you from the overwhelming burden of chasing your own glory. We've already discovered together how that kind of outlook frees you from the troubling burden of of seeing yourself as a victim. And today I want us to see how that kind of focus, that kind of mission, frees us from the suffocating, endless trappings of this life in this world that never pay off. So look, listen to the focus delivered in the next verse. Listen to this again in verse 21. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. To me, Paul says, living means living for Christ. To live is Christ, he literally says there. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus is our life. He is the author of it. He is the creator of it. He is the commander of our life. But Paul is not talking about Jesus' role here. What Paul is talking about is his own personal response to that truth. Paul's aim and desire and motivation is to share and serve and exalt and glorify and make much of Christ with his life. And here's this. That's the list. That's it. That's the motivation for everything he does. That's the prism through which he sees his world. That's the priority upon which he bases his decisions. To live for Paul simply means to make much of Jesus Christ. Right, so getting a promotion or making more money or living vicariously through children or chasing success or acquiring possessions or increasing his fame or pursuing comfort and achievement, those aren't on that list. He's just not living for any of those. Paul is saying what we just saying, this world has nothing for me, nothing for me to pursue or worship, nothing worthy of grabbing all of my devotion because that already belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, There's something we need to clear up here because I can almost hear the objections going off in your brains right now. To state that this world has nothing for me, right, doesn't mean that I go live in a cardboard box and I never pursue my interests and I become a monk and shave my head and just quote scripture all day every day. It's not what that means. Thanks to God, the followers of Jesus Christ have been given incredible freedoms and even commanded to enjoy their passions and interests and pursuits if, and this is a big if, if they are using those to glorify God. There's a reason this morning that many of you can play an instrument and carry a note and you find much pleasure in that 
And there's a reason I can do none of that. I said by my man Spencer today, I feel like I need to apologize to him just for hearing me sing those last two songs, right? But for those of you who can do that, those skills have been given to you by God for you to enjoy him and bring him glory while doing those things. Right? All around the world, you can see without needing a whole lot of discernment, people who are using their gifts and talents to bring themselves glory and fame and adoration and people who are using those gifts to make much of Christ. Same interests, same passions, same skills, just an entirely different motivation. You have a personality, most of you, okay? You have a personality, you have experiences, you have gifts, you have talents, you have things that you enjoy, you have interests, you have things that you get excited about. The call on your life is not to ignore those things or push those things down for the sake of Jesus, but to actually thrive in them and find joy in them because you are using them for his glory and not your own. Right, what Satan wants to do is to get you to take those passions and those interests and those gifts and put them in the place of Christ, where now Jesus and his mission and his church are neglected in the name of pursuing lesser things. It's not what we're called to. Right? All along, you don't have to stop singing songs. You don't have to stop playing sports. You don't have to stop striving to be a good student or building a nice career for yourself. You've just been called to keep Christ on the throne because that's where he belongs. Right? And so as you serve and as you work and as you play and relate in other, with others in light of Jesus and his glory being the ultimate aim of your life in all those pursuits. Right? What, if, what if you actually saw your career and even your success in that career in that light? Because now, now you know that God has placed people in your life through your job that you might not ever talk to otherwise. Now, if God has blessed your business, he has given you a platform and resources to pour into his kingdom, not yours. What if sports were actually used as the amazing opportunity they are to connect with other people in your life who have common interests as you and they need to hear about Jesus instead of just a replacement God whose altar we bow down to in place of Christ? What if you saw your children as a blessing from God given to you for his glory, that they are amazing gifts who will expand your influence into homes and lives and people that you would never had, have had a chance to point to Jesus? Not something to be protected or something to be lived vicariously through. It's the path to real joy. Right? To live is to live for Christ, Paul says. That's what living is. And even more, to die is gain. Dying's even better. Now, Paul's not suicidal here. Okay? He's not obsessing over the darker matters of existence. He's not dismissing death either. Right? Paul is aware of death. He's aware that it will come knocking for all of us. And he's especially aware of it, that it will come one day knocking for him. In fact, he knows that might be how his time in prison ends, by being executed. But you see, his outlook on life flows directly from his understanding of death. You're not, if you're not ready to die, then you're just not ready to fully live. You're just not. Right? And so in life and in death, Paul belongs to Christ. And there are some amazing promises in that. He also wrote 1 Corinthians 15, when in which he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. 
And the law gives sins its power, but thank God he gives us the victory over sin and over death in our Lord Jesus Christ. He continues here in Philippians 1. Look at verse 22. He says, uh, in verse 21, he says, in dying even better, verse 22, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be better for me, but for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. You see, Paul has an understanding of death that is not one of fear or trepidation, but of hope, right? He understands what is waiting for him when his earthly life is over, and it is not death, It's not darkness. It's not suffering. This is the man who wrote in Romans 8, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul is a man who knows and believes in and has hope and confidence and trust in what Jesus said in John 11 when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. That's why Paul says, death is not really death. Because to me, it's just going to be with Christ. Is that you this morning? Is that your story? Is that, that, that death has no hold on you? No say in your life? No victory over you? Listen, religion doesn't give you that. Being a good person doesn't give you that. Understanding good and bad and right and wrong, it doesn't give you that. Believing in God doesn't give you that. Church attendance and dropping a few bucks in the plate and combing your hair, wearing your tie, tucking your shirt, and none of that gives you that. What granted Paul such confidence was the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was that Jesus came. It was that Jesus died to pay his price and then defeated death. Paul was at one point wholly and entirely against Jesus and his church, but Paul repented He turned from his ways and Christ took over his life and forgave him and gave him a glorious future beyond the grave. A future that is described for us in the Bible as living in the presence of God forever where all pain and loss and misery and tears and separation and sorrow and death are gone forever. A future where everything is perfect, including us, because God is perfect and has made us perfect in Jesus Christ. A future beyond what we can imagine. A future better than anything that you can picture in your mind. A future guaranteed for us in Jesus Christ. That can be your story. Stop relying on yourself. Stop relying on your goodness. Stop relying on your parents' upbringing. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Let him take over and forgive you and take hold of you. And when you're his, then death is not something to fear. It's not something to fear because all of the sting and power of it has been removed from you. Because if you're in Jesus Christ, death is not death. Death is not death if it kills no part in me except the parts that kept me from a perfect life. Death isn't death at all if it just raises me in a single moment from darkness to light, from weakness to strength, from sinfulness to holiness. Death isn't death at all if it perfects my faith by sight and lets me see the one who paid my price. Death isn't death at all if all it kills in me is doubt and fear and sickness and disease and sorrow and sadness and sin. Death isn't death if it reunites me with those that I've loved and lost. Death isn't death at all because Jesus conquered death, not just for himself, but all who believe in him. And even knowing that, Paul is still torn. 
He's currently in chains. He's been beaten and whipped and stoned. He's endured persecutions and sufferings and personal attacks. And waiting for him is a place with no pain and no misery and no chains. And yet he can't even focus fully on what's best for him. And the reason he can't get this, this is crazy. The reason he can't is because there's still joy for him here. There's still joy for him here. That while Christ grants him breath here, he has the joy of making much of him. And so he can still influence the church. He can still tell others about Christ. He can still fulfill his God-given purpose for existence to glorify God. And he's just not content, not now, not ever, with having that joy remain a single solitary experience. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. Now we're getting somewhere. In this verse, you get another glimpse of Paul's motivation for these people that he loves so dearly. And if if it's going to sound recurring to you, it's because it is. Paul has been trying to beat this into their brains, and guess what? So am I. A huge part of Paul's motivation in being okay with waiting on the future that is guaranteed him is that he can help the church grow and hear these words as strongly as they are. He can help them experience the joy of their faith. Now, I want you to listen for a second to something else that Paul wrote in another letter. This is Paul retelling what has happened to him in his life as he's tried to make much of Jesus. Listen to these words. He says, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked long and hard, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And besides all this, I have the daily burden of my overwhelming concern for the churches. Who is weak without me feeling that weakness? That man with that story and that resume says, I think God's keeping me alive. So I can help you discover the joy of your faith in this life. You know what? If I were honest, there'd be a big part of me that'd say, you know what, Paul? Thank you, but I'm good. Because if that's your version of joy, my joy quotient is plenty full. Thank you very much. And if you're honest, you'd say that too, wouldn't you? You're not volunteering for that. Not willingly. But what I want to argue to you today is that Paul has discovered in his life and in his existence something that is so rare and yet so beautiful, something that we so rarely come across. Paul has had his eyes open to a truth that so many of us will live all of our days and miss out on. And that is this. The truth about you is that you don't know the truth about you. The truth about you is that you don't know what's best for you. 
The truth about you is that your voice should be the last voice you're listening to. The truth about you is that you constantly settle for less than what is available to you, and all the while you have actually convinced yourself you're chasing what you really want. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, God finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at a sea, we are just far too easily pleased. See, Lewis, just like Paul, had had enough of the veil removed by God to pierce through and see what almost none of us see, and that is that we settle, we just aim far too low. And we are so cursed that we actually believe that we're striving. Paul, for an entire chapter now, has been telling these Christians and modeling for them these ideas. Stop looking out for yourself. Stop trying to make sure that you're taken care of. Stop trying to make sure that you get the treatment and respect and honor that you think you deserve from God and from others. Stop focusing on what's happening to you and do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring glory to Christ. And as we've read it, as I've said it, as you've heard it, there has been a part of me and you and all of us that has reacted like this. Well, that sounds hard. That sounds hard because I like the subdivision a whole lot more than I like jail. I like my, my mocha latte a lot more than I like a ration of bread and water. I like my head attached to my neck more than the other way around. But you see, what I'm failing to recognize when I had that reaction is how messed up I am. And that I live under a curse. And that curse is there due to sin. And the truth of the matter is this. I am not a reliable guide for my life. I'm just not. I might be the loudest voice in my life. I might be the most influential voice in my life. I might be the hardest voice to ignore. But none of that changes the fact that it is an ignorant voice. And there are a couple ramifications to this, right? First is this. For those who are outside of Christ, those who do not belong to him, then this life is all there is. Okay, so it is natural, it is normal, it's just routine for them to be drawn to and strive for the things of this world. Money, popularity, power, pleasure, prestige have incredible holds on people because it is the end all of their experience. By all means, if this brief life is all there is, get all you can and go out in a blaze of glory. Just go for it. But see, all along, something deep inside of them is broken and suffering and empty because this is not all there is. And every now and then, there's a glimpse, just a ray of hope. There's a light that pierces through the darkness and reveals to them a deeper truth. When the Titanic sank, there were 11 millionaires on board. One of them was Major A.H. Pushin, and while the boat was sinking, he returned to his room to grab valuables that he thought he'd need before he got on the lifeboat. And what he left behind was $300,000 worth of money and jewelry. What he grabbed was a handful of oranges. He said later, in that moment, the money just seemed to be a mockery. From time to time, God will sink the boat of your life. He will do it. And he will do it because he loves you. 
And he will do it because for so many of us, we have to hit rock bottom before we realize the truth that has been there all along. I am a terrible guide for my life. All around our world, you hear this lie being spread and promoted. Look out for you. Make sure that your needs are met. Pursue your happiness. Make sure you give to yourself as much as you give of yourself. You can't be a happy person without taking care of you. Well, congratulations. If you live that life, you just guaranteed yourself a completely unsatisfied, unfulfilled life devoid of any lasting joy. I mean, if wealth and power were actually meant to fulfill us, then how come it is never enough? If, if pleasure is what we were created for, then how come it doesn't last? If we were made for thrills or experiences or, or the experience of getting high, then how come people keep going back to drugs again and again and again and again until their lives are ruined or they are dead? If we were designed for comfort or security or fame or achievement, how come there is no rest in any of it? Each one of these vices, when we experience them, do not leave us fulfilled or joyous. They leave us with a huge gap and an emptiness and a desire for more. So we chase them again and again and again for all the same results. And I myself am perpetuating a cycle of destruction for me and those around me. All the while I'm finding no joy and no fulfillment and yet I run back to them like a dog returning to its vomit. And all the while I am so cursed that I not just say but believe with everything in me that I should listen to me, that I should have control, that I should get to make all the calls in my life because I know what's best despite a lifetime of evidence proving that to be wrong. Now the second ramification is this. If you are in Christ this morning, this is still in you. Don't act like it isn't, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to continue his work until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. That's what we were told early in chapter one. Thank God for that, but the work is not finished. Your sinful nature is just as active as it always was. You've been given power in Christ. You've been given a way out, but don't act or carry yourself uh, like it doesn't have an influence over you. You have not arrived. I have not arrived, and therefore I remain a terrible, terrible guide for my life. Left to myself, left to my own devices, I will pursue and desire and will long for the very things of this world. Left to my own devices, I will be convinced that I and everyone in my life has been placed here for my glory. Because regardless of where you are in your walk with Christ, we look at Paul's lot in life as he writes this letter, in jail, in chains, with people harming him, and we say, I don't want that. I don't want that. But yet as I say that and as I confess that, I must also be honest and admit this. In my freedom to go where I chose this week, in my ability to sleep in my climate-controlled bedroom, and despite the fact I don't even have a Band-Aid on this morning, much less scars and wounds, I guarantee that I experienced more stress and more frustration and more fretting and more angst and more worry this week than Paul did while he sat in jail and wrote this letter. Because the dirty little secret about me is that I have no idea what's best for me. What are you pursuing above all else? What, are, what voice is loudest in your life? There's only one path, one that leads to joy. Real, true, lasting, unbeatable joy. 
joy that is not dependent on me or my circumstances or how others see me or how they treat me. Joy that is untouchable. It is unshakable. It is real, lasting, reliant joy. Because it has been given to me by the greatest power in the universe. Joy that flows from having more and more and more and more of Jesus Christ in my life. Joy that comes from having one aim in my life. And that is to make much of him in any way that I can with anything that he gives me. That pursuit, that life vision, that's what leads to joy. It leads to the best experience for you and your soul and for the souls of those around you. Jesus himself asked, what does it gain you if you gain the whole world and yet you lose your soul? He's not just talking about salvation there. It goes deeper than that because Jesus also said, listen, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus' aim and intentions for you are to point you to who you were created to be, to be fulfilled in ways that you never knew were possible, to get you to stop settling for the cheap thrills and pleasures and stuff and fleeting happiness that this world offers you, and to pursue joy. And yes, the only way to walk that path is to ignore you. Stop chasing stop pursuing what you want to chase and pursue stop trusting yourself because let's be honest you haven't been good to yourself have you who's lied to you more who has hurt you more who has deceived you more who has worked to your detriment and loss more in your life than you have no one no one so left to yourself you will settle You will pursue and acquire things that are far less worthy than what Jesus has for you. And all the while, here's the the kicker, you're going to be convinced that you're getting a good deal. And we play to an audience of one. What God thinks of my life, what God desires for me, what God wants for me, what God brings my way. That's what's best for me. Yes, I push back, I try to explain it away, I blame him or doubt him or go my own ways, but, but who are we to think that we know more than him? Who are we to think that we could ever be a good guide for our own lives? So let's just invite God's scope into your life. Invest time in his word. Here's what we're told about his word, that it is active, it is breathing, it is a double-edged sword and it cuts. It reveals things to you that you could never see yourself. It is a powerful, reliable guide that has stood the test of time and its track record, trust me on this, is way better than yours. Spend time with him in prayer and just ask him, like David did, just to put his finger on things in your life that you didn't even know were there or you didn't even know were wrong. Ask him to remove the hold that you have on yourself. Ask him to make you a person who hears your own voice, who fights for your own way, who pursues your own desires less and less and less and less as time goes on. And ask him to make you into a person who wants to glorify and serve and exalt him more and more and more and more as time goes on. That alone is the path to joy. That's it. A joy that's unshakable, untouchable, that is lasting, it is permanent joy. In the year 79 AD, there's... In the Roman city of Pompeii, the Mount Vesuvius erupted, volcano, and it poured hot lava and volcanic ash all over the city. 
Over 2,000 people died that day. They didn't make it out of the city in time. They never saw it coming. The town was left abandoned for 1,700 years. In 1748, the site was rediscovered by explorers. And what they found was that the volcanic, volcanic ash had actually mummified everything. It had preserved everything. And so as they dug down under the ash, Pompeii and everything in it was frozen just as it had been when the lava hit. And so what they discovered, the discovery of one woman, was a very tragic tale. Her final position was preserved for all those years, and it was a difficult one for the explorers to handle. This woman's feet were pointed towards the city gate. They were pointed towards safety. They were pointed towards life. But frozen for all time, her outstretched arms and fingers were straining and reaching for something behind her. And what she was reaching for was still there, also mummified for all of history to cover, to discover just outside the reach of her fingers was a bag of pearls and jewelry. It's the last thing she ever clutched for. Friends, God has moved and he has worked and he has given and he's experienced great loss to lay before you this morning forgiveness and eternal life and purpose and fulfillment and wisdom and peace and joy. That's the offer. May God make me a person. May he make us a church. May he make us a people who stop reaching back, who stop desperately clutching for lesser things than what he has for us. And may we move forward in the light of his grace in response to his gospel and listening to his voice alone for the glory of his name. And stop settling. Let's pray. Father, to live is Christ. What powerful words. Lord, and even better, we get to see it in Paul's life. We get to see a man untouched by harm, a man untouched by afflictions, a man not shaken by imprisonment or personal attacks, a man with a deep, un, a deep abiding joy through it all. And all along, that's what's offered to us. But God, I don't want this. I don't want it because I'm cursed. And I actually believe that I know what's best for me when it's, when it's far from the case. And so for me and those in this room, God, I just ask a simple thing. Convince us we're wrong. Convince us that you really do have what's best for us. Convince us that we have no idea what it is. Convince us to stop listening to ourselves and start listening to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Love you all. Stand and sing.